Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to today's uh, FS Club webinar, From Paper Tape to Low Latency Data, A Lifetime in Market Data. And we have today one of my dear friends, Herbie Skeet, and we're going to be discussing, this is a bit of kind of this is your life, Herbie, uh, but <laughs> we're going to also be looking at the history of Reuters uh, and looking to the future. Uh, Herbie and I are somewhat contemporaneous in terms of our use of uh, computers in finance. Um, You'll know me, Michael Mainelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien, and it really is my privilege to be able to introduce uh, so many of these fantastic uh, webinar series from FS Club. Uh, we can only do so thanks to the generosity of our sponsors, who are very kind and allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. Uh, and today we're going to be bringing uh, technology, finance, and economics all together in a good look at the trajectory that's been followed in terms of finance and computing. But enough of that by way of introduction, just to remind you of the format. Um, I'll get out of your way as quickly as I can so that you can hear from Herbie. Uh, Herbie's going to speak for 20 to 25 minutes, and then we'll have a fairly interactive discussion about uh, topics. And uh, please do use the GoToWebinar question facility. It's there on the, uh, on the control panel that you have. Uh, please do ask your questions via that. Don't send them to me via email because I'm here with you and I'll only pick up those questions afterwards. Uh, and then a word of warning for those of you who are fast on the buzzers. Well, uh, Herbie has three uh, poll questions, which I think will help us all uh, get a flavor for what we know and what we don't know. Uh, but with that, you've seen Herbie's uh, biography in the invitation, and it's also up on the, on the site. And uh, Herbie, uh, the floor is very much yours. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for your kind introduction. As the bell uh, said, I spent a lifetime in Reuters. Of course, Reuters is now known as Refinitiv after various um, transactions. And Refinitiv is really the marketed assets of what used to be known as Reuters or Thompson Reuters. But, uh, next slide, please, Michael. Now, Reuters uh, was one of the world's very first fintech companies. Now, when I was preparing this presentation, I, I ran it past my former colleagues in, in editorial. And I was told, you can't say that. You can't prove it. And of course, you know, in Reuters, unless you can verify a fact by getting three different people to verify it, you can't say it. But going back to 1850, it's very difficult to get anyone to say whether it's true or not. But as far as I'm concerned, there weren't many companies around in those days which combined technology and financial information. So we were really one of the, the world's very first fintech companies. And, you know, um, innovation was part of the Reuters DNA and still is today to a certain extent. Now, the story begins not with paper tape, but with carrier pigeons, in that the founder of, Ro of Reuters, Paul Julius Reuter, he used the carrier pigeons to uh, transmit stock and commodity prices from uh, Brussels, where the uh, telegraph line ended in, in Belgium, to Aachen, where the German line began. Now, some of you on the call today may remember a colleague of mine by the name of Andre Villeneuve. But one of Andre Villeneuve's favorite sayings to graduate trainees and young interns was, there's a gap in the market, but is there a market in the gap? As far as the, as the good baron was concerned, there was indeed a gap in the market and a market in the gap. And pigeons have played a glorious part of Rhodes history until fairly recently. And in fact, the very last time they were used was during the Second World War, when they were used by our uh, war correspondents to send messages from the Normandy beachheads back to London. And I'm reliably informed 
that the pigeons were configured in a live standby mode, just in case one of them got shot down by enemy fire. Now, Rochester has always been either um, slightly behind or in balance of technology, and the telegraph line or the cable was no exception. And when the cable was laid between the UK and the USA, Rogers was not far behind, um, as it were, embedding its journalists in the USA behind the telegraph. And this coverage, like now, wasn't just news of what was going on in the world of politics. It also included, uh, you know, uh, what was going on in the world of commerce, shipping, and other market uh, moving activities, activities like that. But still, politics was also part of what Rogers did. And when President Lincoln was assassinated, uh, I don't know what year it was, but certainly Rogers was the very first to bring the news back to London using the telegraph. Now, part of the, the myth of Rogers is that we were actually two days ahead of the competition. I'm afraid it, it wasn't as much as that. It was more, it was a mere two hours. But in, the, in that, in those days, two hours was a long time. Even today, it's a lifetime, but that was enough time for our clients to, as it were, fill their boots. Now, to someone like myself, who has spent a lifetime in financial markets, technology, like, you know, like a capacity of central systems, comms capacity, we're always fighting a losing battle uh, in terms of, it doesn't matter how much capacity you have, the data for markets is always threatening to overwhelm it. And it was also the case even in 1865, when messages from the London Stock Exchange were was uh, overwhelming the telegraph network. It just goes to show that is that, that there's never anything new under the sun. Now we're going to jump forward a hundred years, if you please note, to the very first product of Rogers in the modern era, uh, the, the very first electronic product, and that product was the Rogers Stockmaster. Now this product was not devised by Rogers itself; it was the typical two guys in a garage back in the States who came up with this service, and this was a, a, a product which. Um, it was based around the IBM 360, and information from, from uh, stock and commodity exchanges will come in, will get processed by the 360, and then the data will be stored on magnetic drums. And in, in the slide, you can see a, a, a sectionalized photograph of, a, of a, a drum, and those drums were very, very fast. I think you'll probably find that they're much faster than the than a, even a modern, a modern um, hard disk. And that you have so many read, read right heads there. And of course, if, if one of the heads crashed into the drum, that was a big problem, but they were incredibly fast. And the machine to, to actually get it going, you had to bootstrap it. And that meant going to the front panel, flicking some switches, and then using paper tape to get, to get the bootstrap program going. And the, the software and, and any data was loaded from punch cards. And if you were a new kid on the block, as I was back in 1978, I didn't join in 64, by the way. I, I, I joined in 1978. I may look as though I joined in 64, but that, that wasn't the case. If you were a new kid, uh, for the first six months, months, you weren't allowed to, to compile code or to assemble code. You actually had to hand assemble everything. And that was done so that you'll get to know the instructions set inside out, but also so that you'll get to understand how the hardware worked. Because in those days, you had to actually understand how the hardware worked and how the software worked. And also, any patches that had to be written, you, you were the person responsible for um, writing the, the, the patches and, and, and loading them by, by the front panel. But, you know, it, it certainly taught you how the machines uh, work, and you got to know it inside out. And 
and I tell you that, that debugging software was not a job for the faint-hearted. Now, there were several firsts associated with the introduction of the Stockmaster service. For example, the very first um, transatlantic uh, trans TDM was installed as part of the project. And a 2400 bit per second link across the Atlantic was installed again as part of this project. Now, that speed, 2400 bits per second, may, song to, may seem to be terribly slow. But in those days, you know, it was terribly fast. In fact, when I joined in 78, you know, 9600 bits per second was probably, it wasn't quite as fast as it got, but it wasn't far off being very fast. I know today we talk in terms of gigabits and stuff like that, but in those days, you know, those were, were the, the speeds that we were operating with. And in fact, many of the feeds coming into the, the Stockmaster service, the, uh, there weren't feeds as, as we know them today. A lot of the, the feeds were a paper tape being um, loaded in, into the system, or uh, in Rogers, there were, there were clerks on the floor of the exchange using um, the telegraph to send messages, to send prices back, back to the system. And in those days, you know, if, if something didn't exist, we either had to invent it or build, or build it. There was no Amazon. You couldn't just go and order it. So the very first operational consoles were actually built by a, a fish and chip shop fitter who, you know, who, he built the very first consoles. Now, you probably don't think that this is true, but I can assure you it is really true. There's a very good history of Rogers written by Professor Donald Reed, in which you'll find this and a lot more information. So, you know, you had to be inventive. Uh, otherwise, you couldn't get a, a product launch. Now, the, the very next thing in Rogers after the, the stock market, but, but, but here we don't have a poll. So, great. So, uh, we're going to launch the poll now, folks, uh, just to try and get a handle on the audience. Um, panelists are not allowed to vote, including myself, but I will say that yes, so using paper tape and punch cards on PDP 8s and uh, IBM 360s, uh, the same era as Herbie. Uh, got nearly everybody who's voted. I'm just going to close the poll here. And there you go. Well, it just goes to show. <laughs> and there we are. Uh, I must have sort of split 50 50 there, Herbie. Yeah, but I'm surprised that more people than I thought have actually used uh, punch cards or paper tape. Anyhow, um, the, the next big um, product of Project and Reuters was, was the Reuters Monitor System. And this system was conceived in 1972. Uh, some of you with long memories may re recall that Nixon ended the ability to convert the US dollar into a fixed amount of gold. And this was the, the ending of the Bretton Woods Agreement. And, and, and instead of having static exchange rates, fixed rates of like, you know, uh, pound versus a dollar or whatever, Currencies can now float against each other. And this new market, the, the, the unregulated market of foreign exchange emerged. Now, in those days, Rogers was not a very rich company, believe it or not. It didn't have much, much money to spend. And the idea of developing uh, uh, a network for, for this market where, where dealers could trade foreign exchange was one which the company was very attractive to. But at the same time, there were many, many risks involved. And it was a case of should we bet the farm that they're going to make some money out of this new market? I think that there was some uh, market survey done by some of the early uh, marketing guys in Reuters, and they thought that this market, probably no more than 25 clients could be found for it after like three or four years. Now, as, as we're going to see later on, that was not the case. There were a lot more than that. 
in that one, one of the things that was that was causing problems was that the the telecom authorities in those days were very much against um, anyone carrying uh, traffic, um, a third party carrying traffic on a, on a lease line, and that was just one of the the, the, the problems that that, that Rogers had to to overcome. Another of, of the problems was that um, the the software had to be reliable and it had to be efficient because you, you don't want to be you know exposing your 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 um, exchange rates on a system that was going to fall over every any minute every second it just it just wasn't going it just wasn't on uh, next slide please michael and also until then Rogers expertise had been mainly in the field of hardware however Rogers was was, was a company used to uh, using uh, uh, telecom uh, net networks and the Rogers principles, which, which go, goes back to its days as a as an editorial company, was that you had to be accurate, you had to be fast, and your news had to be impartial. And integrity integrity was at, was at the very core of everything that Rogers did. And this was what the banks wanted to to hear, because as I said, you know, the banks wouldn't give their uh, their, their their precious rates. To someone who was who was not not trusted to actually do a good job. Now, when we look at the technical context, um, Microsoft and Apple didn't exist then, and and the founders of, of, of Google weren't even a gleam in their parents' eyes. They just you know, they weren't born then. And Intel had just launched its first four-bit microprocessor, and the internet as we know it today wasn't around. There was an ARPANET, but but I'm not sure how many of you remember the ARPANET. Michael probably does, I'm sure. But not not many, not many people do. But the ARPANET was, was not something something that, that lent itself to, to easy use. And another problem was that there wasn't a suitable operating system for Rogers to use. So what did the company do? It actually invented its own operating system, which was fast and reliable because nothing existed that could actually get the job done. So typically of Rogers in those days, you innovate, you actually develop your own operating system, and that system was known as Rex. I really can't remember what, what Rex stood for, but it was a very good operating system. There was also no suitable high-level language on which to base the development. And the environment in which the, the software was being developed was very, very primitive, involving paper tape, mic tape, and data entry via teletype. And, you know, the software was developed on PDP-8s, and there was a lot, a lot of memory to, to, to use. In fact, the computer just had eight, in, eight instructions and two addressable registers. My iPhone has more memory today and is more powerful than the machines of that of that of that era, and and those are just just some of the challenges that Rogers had to overcome, but overcome them they did, and the Rogers monitor system, the uh, service was launched in 1973, and when it was launched, I think there were approximately 30 clients, and the photograph we can see there on the screen, uh, with lots of phones, lots of wires, some people having like like two phones, three phones, that's what a, a dealing room looked like before monitor. It was very noisy. In fact, they're noisy, noisy today as well. And lots of phones and no screens, just phones. Now, the, all that changed with the, with the introduction of monitor. And now we can see the very first monitor terminal looking very sexy, very nice. And, and, and that was no accident. And that Rogers engaged with um, state-of-the-art designers to actually come up with, with something looking very, very attractive. And today's foreign exchange market, which was pioneered by Rogers, 
uh, it now trades something like $6.6 trillion a day. And that's a figure from 2019. You know, so from small beginnings, that market is now uh, one of the biggest markets in the world. And it's not just just Reuters. There were, there were companies like um, Telerate was also uh, around in those days. It started after after we did. And then, of course, and Bloomberg afterwards. But it's now a very big market. But that market went from, from, the, from the telephone onto the screen, and it's never looked back. The next logical um, poll is this one. Okay, the results are in. Okay. Okay, the, the next logical development in the, the foreign exchange market as far as as far as we were concerned in Reuters was the development of a of a dealing system. The dealing system was launched in 1981 with 145 subscribers. Now, when I say dealing, it wasn't dealing by matching. It was it was what we call conversational dealing, in which the um, the traders could communicate on the Reuters system to to, to buy or sell uh, uh, foreign exchange. And, and initially, there were two there were two um, panels on the screen in which um, uh, dealers could have a conversation. And then that expanded to, to four. Now, in many respects, this was the world's first social media pl platform. Uh, unfortunately, the management of the day, well, not all of them, but some of them, um, they thought that this was a, a serious product and should only be used for serious activities like trading. It shouldn't be used for chit chat, like, like arranging lunch, drinks, or stuff like that. Now, that was a very serious mistake on the part of Rogers management because Bloomberg was just about to, just about to be born. And the, and, and the glue of, Bloom, of Bloomberg was the messaging system. But Rogers had a messaging system that was widely used by, by traders way ahead of Bloomberg. But unfortunately, Rogers never capitalized on it. Now, the only drawback of, of allowing traders to talk to each other was if there was a war uh, between two countries, as happened during, during the Falklands conflict uh, between the UK and Argentina, uh, traders would often use, often use the, the dealing platform to hurl insults at each other. So Rogers had to go and police the dealing system to make sure that such um, uh, such things didn't get out of hand. But you know, um, not a good idea having a conversation when when there's a war on. Now Rogers was always one for, for uh, early use of technology, and Rogers was talking to Microsoft, to uh, Apple, um, uh, academics, research labs, and because of all the learning that we did with. Um, early technology using Windows icons and mice, Rogers was able to launch what was called the Advanced Rogers Terminal in 1986. And this was the very first terminal that, that Rogers had that, that used uh, Microsoft Windows. Now, those of you who use Windows in those, uh, in those days will know that it was extremely unreliable. You often got, you often got the, the blue screen of death. And I well remember Bill Gates coming around to, 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 to Rogers 
begging and pleading for Rogers to actually use Windows. And that's something that didn't happen to, to a limited extent until 1986. Um, but it was, it was actually the beginning of, of, of Rogers beginning to get, to get a bit more open and so on. And this, this new terminal combined, uh, data from monitor with news graphics and spreadsheet capabilities. And it sold very, very well. Now, the next development after that was the, was IDN, which was Roger's first, um, attempt to integrate all of its, um, all of its, um, uh, product lines on, on, on one system. Sorry there, Ruby, I accidentally slipped. No, that's okay. Okay. And so, so IDN was launched in 1987. And, and this product was, was where Rodis began to, to integrate all of its data on one, on one network. And the very first product to get launched on, on the, on the network was actually 2000. And you remember when we were discussing the, 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 the Stockmaster, what I forgot to say was that Rodis had the rights to this product for everywhere in the world apart from North America. And as part of that deal, all of the North American exchange data came from Ultronics. And when that was taken over by ADP GTIs, that continued. So when, when IDN was launched in 1987, Rogers was able to source all of its data, uh, from its own resources. Now, shortly after the, uh, uh, IDN was launched, there was a market crash in October. And although the system was designed to handle, um, message rates way beyond what, what we had, had ever seen, the, the October crash saw those, those rates, um, the rates of traffic being much higher than that. But, but the, the IDN network was able to, to stand the strain. But that really started Rogers having a serious look at predicting the future in terms of looking at, at what sort of regulatory developments are going, are going to be happening over the next one, two, three, four, five years. So that we, so that, so that we could actually gauge what's going to be the impact on, on networks, central systems and last mile delivery. But also we began to engage in a purposeful way with hardware companies, software companies, so that we could see what developments were going to be taking place over the next year, two years, three years, and four years, so that we could bake all that in into future requirements and to make sure that our central systems could, could always cope. Now, as I said before, Rogers was becoming more open with the introduction of Microsoft the Windows. And in 1987, Rogers installed its very first data room system where our clients could, could, could integrate um, data not, not just from Rogers, but from other vendors like Bloomberg or Telerate or whoever, and make them available on, 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 on the broker's own screens. And um, at the same time, Unix web extensions that, that, uh, began to appear in the market. And these were much more powerful than, 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 than conventional PCs and quickly became a favorite with, with, with traders. So in 87, Rogers began to go mainstream away from, from having its own hardware, away from having, uh, homebrewed operating systems into like Microsoft Windows, Unix, and other operating systems. A much more open company. Now, the, 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 uh, dealing, as I explained before, was, um, conversational dealing. But in 1988, Rogers, uh, um, began to launch into, um, uh, dealing by matching. But before I go there, this is what a, a typical data room looked like in 1987. And if you remember what the, the first photograph you saw of the, of dealers with phones and, and trusted cables, 
this is a far cry from that. It, it, it's a very neat looking uh, dinner room, and, and that was a Rotary's dinner room of circa 1987. Very different from from the from the from the dinner rooms of the of the early 70s. Now, in 1988, um, Rogers came to an agreement with the CME to develop a, a, a trading system, and this Globex, uh, and this system, which is called Globex, was used by the, by the CME outside of the open outcry hours to provide 24-hour trading. And this was the first example of Rogers acting as a turnkey systems operator. Now, some of you may recall LIFE, which was, I think, born uh, in the mid-80s. And LIFE was an exchange that had mostly a floor, but also it had, a, had a automated, a, an automated trading system. But this automated trading system, there was only one contract on it that was traded solely on the, on the automated trading system. And, and that, I think, was a Japanese... Um, Government bond contract. The most popular contract um, that Life had in those days was a German bond contract. Uh, sadly for, for Life, the new Dr. Turbin Boris, which is now called Eurex today, um, uh, that came into existence in about 1988-89. And with, within weeks of the DTB starting up, it, it took all the liquidity of the, of, the, of the Life German bond contract away from Life onto Onto the DDB uh, market. DDB, uh, uh, I must explain, was a totally automated trading system. Now, now Rogers was talking to Life about coming on board uh, the, the Globex system, but unfortunately, uh, Life, despite us talking to them for, for many months, didn't agree to it. And we often wondered what would have happened if Life had come on board Globex from the very beginning. Would, would they have lost all that liquidity to DDB? And remember, once, once an exchange loses, loses liquidity, it very rarely comes back. And that's what, what, ha what happened to life. In fact, it was a, a, near, a near life, ex no pun intended, but it was a near life, life experience for life. And it, it almost died. Um, but of course it, it came back. Okay. So the next, um, big thing for Rogers was the launch of, of proper dealing. That's dealing with matching of bids and offers. And that happened in, in 1992. And the, the currencies available were, were dollar sterling, dollar mark, and dollar yen. And, and that system took many more years to develop than was, than was originally envisaged. In fact, the very first system, the very first dealing system was meant to be, to be matching. But the powers, but, uh, but, but, but the powers that be thought it was going to be a step too far and that it was going to be very complicated. The, the, they were very much correct in that the dealing system, I think it was, it was three or four years late by the time it was launched. And I remember the CEO going to the market many times to explain why it was late and the share price diving on each occasion. But it was eventually launched in 1992. Now, as, as well as, um, uh, processing feeds, um, having tri uh, automated training system, Rogers was also, uh, playing with, um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, parallel uh, processing and such uh, techniques. And I don't whether anyone here, even Michael, it's probably aware that Rogers actually developed the, the world's very first uh, AI-powered market, market surveillance system. But we did. I remember going to Sydney to see Professor Aiken, who developed Smarts, and we compared notes. And it, it was remarkable, as we as he showed the screenshots of all the screen displays, they were very much alike. Um, our system was a lot more AI um, than than Smarts, and it actually worked. Uh, unfortunately, Rogers' management wouldn't allow it to be sold to, to, to banks, believe it or not. 
but we actually had a, a, a world beating software which Rogers management thought that we shouldn't get into to such markets. We were also working with a consortium of uh, academic institutions using parallel processing for analysis of financial information. And all of that came something similar to OpenFIN. So we had OpenFIN long before OpenFIN ex existed, but again, nothing happened to it. Um, we were also um, displaying data uh, and disseminating, disseminating data using the internet. But again, Rogers management failed to, to use that. Uh, it was felt that if we were to distribute data via the internet, it would actually, um, you know, that, that, that the pricing that we had for our conventional products would get eroded. Now, as far as it's concerned, either you do it to yourself or someone does it to you. But, but Rogers, you know, lost a trick and not, and not, and not making use of the internet. But things like, like using pattern rec um, recognition as well, we were actually doing. And on the dealing system, we were looking at using sort of voice recognition systems for, um, for trader input. Uh, unfortunately, there were a few drawbacks to that in that the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the voice recognition software was a bit flaky in those days. And the ability to, to recognize a, a trader's lunch before and after lunch was, 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 was a bit of a problem. Now, what is the future of Rogers or Refinitiv as this calls it today? But before we go there, let's have a poll. For your view on that. And just launching that poll now, Herbie. So folks, uh, fingers on buzzers, please. And uh, I don't have anybody who's uh, trying to beat Trevor Hilder's 1974 and ICL-1900 mainframe. So Trevor, you may be holding the record here. And I'll just close that poll in a second. Just uh, virtually everyone has voted. Great. Well, uh, not a very optimistic audience. I don't know if it's a COVID lockdown or what have you, but uh, uh, not optimistic about uh, Reuters and Refinitiv reclaiming its, uh, its, its glory. Okay. Uh, uh, here okay. we go. Let me just share okay. that with you. Okay. There we go. So 64% well, versus uh, 30, 36. Well, I, I can't say, Michael, that I blame them, to be honest. Um, in fact, if you go to the next slide now, you, you'll see my, my view of the future of Reuters. Or rather, um, refinitive as it's called these days. Now, the refinitive, as, as most of you know, is going to be acquired by the LSE group. And that's expected to close in the first quarter of next year. Um, that is if the, if the European Commission, uh, com competition authorities, uh, gives approval. But the question is, will Reuters, will Reuters get, get, get its motor back? I don't think so. I think that the combination of the LSE and Reuters, you're going to have a very risk averse company. You're going to have a company run by essentially bureaucrats, run by, run by committee. And you can't, you can't, you can't innovate by committee. I remember before I left, I left Rogers, um, I, 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 I was, I had a chat with, with, with Devin Bennett and Tom Glosser, who said to me, Herbie, before you go, we want you to tell us how you guys innovated in the good old days. I said, Tom, Devin, you can't teach innovation. You have to have the right environment for it. And by that stage, the environment in Rogers was not conducive towards innovation. It was, it was basically a company run by committee, a company run by spreadsheet. And if a company is overly bureaucratic, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to innovate. And if you, if you, if you make incremental changes, you're never going to have the, the big victories, the big innovations that make a difference. You know, uh, you, you don't have any, any, any products. 
So, so to conclude, to summarize on, on, where, on, on where the company is or was, it was a very interesting company, a very wonderful company. As one of my friends once said, we were privileged to work in the, in the world's biggest toy factory. You came in every day, you had a new challenge, you know, and, and we devised products that, that were really revolutionary, products that didn't exist. And, you know, it, it wasn't any use going to the market and asking what they thought about whether a product should be done or not, because the traders were too busy to talk to you. We actually had, had to come up. Obviously, you, you had to go and talk to the market and get guidance from them. You know, but, but Rogers had to take risk as well. And the Rogers, the Rogers of today is, as I said before, is risk averse. And in those days, if the, te- if, if the, te- if the technology wasn't available or, or, or it's too ex- expensive, you had to actually, you know, come up with a, a solution yourself. You couldn't go and buy it off the shelf in many respects. So no problem was insoluble. You know, today's Rogers or today's Refinitive is one that's incredibly, um, bureaucratic. Where, you know, it's management by spreadsheet, management by rules. In those days, we believe that rules were made to be broken. You just don't get caught. You know, technical boundaries were pushed to the limit. And that, and that was done to come up with unique global products. Thanks very much. Herbie, that, that was wonderful. Uh, you bring back, uh, too many memories, I think. Uh, I, I was interested, well, you know, one of the, the intriguing things is that there's a Telegraph Street uh, in the city of London in Broad Street Ward, and it's located there actually because of the stock exchange, um, because the, the option was to locate it uh, near the old GPO offices, but instead they chose to, to locate it to be there. And I think a lot of people forget how important uh, that freeing up of data transmission on the lines was. So that's a really good reminder. Uh, particularly in these days of the splinter net, as it's sometimes called, as we're looking at uh, various types of walled gardens. Uh, for example, uh, the Real Time Club was founded by a group of IT entrepreneurs. I, I was chairman at one point many years later, uh, but back in the late 60s to lobby the UK government to allow uh, data transmission. And in fact, one of the weirdest things that I ever came across was in the early 80s, one of the most valuable bits of British Leyland was that due to some odd clause, British Leyland was allowed to run its own transmission lines and sell uh, the data on it uh, and made a business out of that, which was called Istel. Um, so it, it, interesting bits there. Anyway, uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's great here. We've got a lot of other things to go. But just before we pile in, Herbie, how would you summarize? Where did it all go wrong? Here's this great business. Um, you, you've given us a good example of, you know, what 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 is wrong? But where did it go wrong? Okay, well, it started to go wrong in the eighties. Um, I wouldn't say that it's the fault of Peter Job; he was the CEO then. But uh, I would say that probably David Yor or or John Parcell should have been appointed CEO. But but it wasn't just that. Some of you um, may recall that in nineteen eighty eight, um, Rogers faced a, a life and death situation. Rogers was accused of stealing Bloomberg's data. And the US authorities came after Rogers. And, and that, that was the, the uh, New York DA. And that meant that everything that we were doing came to a grinding halt. It meant that lawyers were more or less running the company. And that went on for two years. And, and we could do absolutely nothing. You know, the company became very bureaucratic. And everything had to be approved, approved by, by lawyers. And, that that sucked, sucked the very life out of the company. 
In fact, a lot of us thought that, 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 that Michael Bloomberg knew that the charge, the charge was baseless, but this was going to tie up the company in knots for the next two or three years, and so it proved. Um, the US authorities used the uh, RICO Act, Act, which is something that you apply against mobsters, against brokers. And I could tell you that when people like myself were flying into New York, you weren't sure whether you are going to be met by the authorities and, and given an a, a, a orange jumpsuit to put on, actually. It was that serious. In fact, some of us were warned that if the US authorities asked the British authorities to investigate what was going on over here as well, uh, that was going to be a criminal matter and the company couldn't, couldn't use, uh, paid for lawyers. So some of us were actually advised to get our own, um, um, legal advice. But, but I tell you, but the company was tied up in knots for several years. And after that, um, Tom Grosser became CEO. Tom Grosser was a guy, by the way, the lawyer in charge internally of the Bloomberg uh, case, uh, him and, and Devin Bennick. And shortly after, after that, they became, they became in charge, they became the CEO and the deputy. Of Reuters, and Reuters became a company run by lawyers and accountants. Uh, it, 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 it was it was it was um, running a company by spreadsheet. Well, in our little uh, competition on my my computing is older than yours, um, you're not going to be surprised on this one, Herbie. Your old friend Ian Hillier Brook is pointing out that he first met you at Zeus Hermes in about '71, but he previously <laughs> started on. Deuce, uh, yeah. in nineteen fifty four. So. Yeah, I forgot. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I was at Zeus, I was at Zeus Hermes before going, going to Rogers. Uh, I think, I think Zeus Hermes came from afterwards. Now yeah. we've got a couple of comments here. Um, uh, JY Presser is asking, uh, you didn't mention the impact of high frequency trading. Uh, and Richard Metcalf is sort of interested in what sort of uh, which sort of latency of market data is helpful for the public good and which allows uh, pri private intermediaries to operate sustainably. Any thoughts on that? Okay, well, uh, I didn't mention high-frequency trading because, um, uh, you know, in 20 minutes you can't cover everything. <laughs> it's my corporate answer to that. But obviously, Rogers was the inventor of high-speed data feeds, I, I would say. And the, and the very first logical feeds were done by Rogers. And that Rogers always believed in having um, logical data. And when Rogers went the, the route of logical data, that really uh, made high-frequency trading possible, or, or rather easier to, um, to do. Um, this is something which the authorities often frowned on, that in the States you have the New York district attorney um, going against Rogers and, and other vendors because they thought that if you provided uh, faster fees at a price different to the ordinary fees, this was given uh, unfair advantage to traders who, who couldn't afford it. My argument to that is like, you know, if you can't afford a Formula One car, you don't you don't have one. You know, you, you have you have an old an old banger. But um, um, low latency is something uh, that today is is a given in markets. Every 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 shop has access to low latency feeds. It doesn't really distinguish between between um, uh, you know, those who, who have the, the wherewithal to, to use it or not. Um, so, you know, so, so HFT is here with us, low, low latency is here with us, and it's here to stay. It's not going to go away. But, but, but whether it gives someone a, a, an unfair advantage or not, I, I don't think so. Whatever the, the, the um, okay. FCA or SEC thing. 
got time to take just two more questions. Um, one sort of negative and one sort of positive. So I'll, I'll start with a slightly negative one here. Uh, Bob McDowell's asks, must we not accept that the products exemplified by Reuters have reached their apex, as indeed have the products and services which Reuters supported? Sorry, could you, could you repeat the question, Michael? Have the products and services that were exemplified by Reuters really sort of reached their apex? You know, are, are we seeing kind of, I guess Bob's asking, are we sort of seeing the flattening uh, of, of innovation in this space? Sure, big data. No, no I, don't, I don't think so. I, I think it's just, it's just that it's, um, Reuters has stopped innovating. But there are lots of, mm -hmm. lots of little companies that, that are innovating, doing some, some wonderful things. Um, that's the problem with, with, with companies like, like Reuters. They get long in the tooth. And they don't, they can't reinvent themselves. But there are lots of, of, of players now. It's easier now to innovate than it was before, you know, because data is readily available. Uh, hardware, software is readily available. So things, things that, that you couldn't dream of years ago are now readily available. And that's the problem is that the ability to surprise and delight is no longer there, you know. Where, where's the product that, that Rogers or Bloomberg, for that matter, have, have come up with that you say, wow, I never thought I, I never thought of that. I mm. haven't seen one of those products for, for a long time. We, we see more of the same, bend down a tiny bit faster, and sexier screens. But that's all. There's been nothing new under the sun for, for years. Okay, you, you have you have blockchain, but I'm sure you will tell us that blockchain has existed for, for forever. You know. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and kind of ending on a sort of a positive note, Ian Sheridan. Uh, is trying to point us away from just the efficiencies of smartphones and chip power. Um, he says, history shows human liquid networks socializing is an immense innovation catalyst. Uh, what does Herbie think about how innovation can thrive in this era? Well, um, innovation thrives from, um, you know, when, 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 well, uh, let me tell you how we, how we used to do it in, 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 the, in the old days, you know. Um, you're going to talk to people who have similar problems, but slightly different. You, you, you don't live in isolation. Um, the very first marketing office office that I, I was in in Rogers, you had a very, there were crappy offices. You had a very long corridor. You had the guy who did FX, the guy who did commodities, the guy who did derivatives. And we were going to talk to each other over coffee. And you found out that the problems were similar, but the solutions were, were a lot different. And by talking to each other, we will come up, we will, we will spark ideas of, of each other. And, and, and that's the way you do it. You actually begin to experiment. You begin to, to look at things with, with different eyes. But I tell you that the best people for this are young people. It, you know, is that young people who don't know that something is impossible. If you think that something is, is, uh, if you think that, that everything is possible, that's when you, that's when you can innovate. If you think it's been done before, why try? That's when things don't happen. And, and one of the things we had to fight against when I was a young, a young kid in Rogers, was someone saying, we tried that five years ago and it didn't work. And I would say, well, well, why, why didn't it work? And no one knew. No one could tell you why it didn't work. But it's when people say, well, I don't think you're right. I think I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. Perhaps I didn't try it this way. But it's, it's by people who, 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 you know, don't think that something is impossible. Everything is possible. That's what you have to be. You have, you have to learn to experiment. You have to learn to try things and that nothing, nothing is impossible. Let's try it. I think, who, who, was it Branson who said, screw it, let's try it, or something like that? That's the way you have to be. Otherwise, nothing ever changes. You're just mm -hmm. incrementally change things. You, you have to go and, and dream strange dreams, you know, and just try everything. You don't innovate by going to a school, learning from a book. You either have it or, or don't have it. But you must have 
you must have the, the right environment in which to innovate. One of the good things about Rogers in those days is that we were allowed to do that. You know, we were allowed to try things, to risk things. And no, and, and no one told us, don't try. The other thing, you have to try and don't make a big mistake. Make a small mistake and learn from it. That was the secret. Herbie, that's that's a great place to to end. Uh, sadly, because we're out of time, uh, I've got a lot of comments here, which I, I will be sending to Herbie um, uh, with your email, so he can get back to you, in touch with you if you wish. But Herbie, thank you so much, and I, I, I think you you've convinced me in a, in a lot of ways that it's it is about culture. Much as we, that's a bit of a vague word, but what you've oh. actually done is you've uh, you've pointed out, and I can see almost that turning point where that U.S. litigation probably caused the company to become less uh, less risk-taking, more risk-averse, and therefore that kind of killed the ability to innovate, uh, which which had made it such a success over yeah. uh, a century and more. Uh, well, well uh, sadly, folks, I've got to draw it to a close, as you know. Um, just to, uh, I'll thank Herbie in a minute, but uh, firstly, I'd like to thank our sponsors. Uh, many of you uh, have grown up uh, looking at Reuters as uh, one of the great innovation companies where technology uh, meets finance. And I hope that you enjoyed a lot of this background and perhaps a, a salutary warning about uh, keeping that innovation going. Uh, we wish those of you who are in uh, Repinitive uh, the best of uh, success trying to turn it around. Uh, so the game is not over yet and the history is, is, is not finished. Um, I'd like to thank all of you out there in the audience uh, for watching. And I'd like to thank you too for a fairly active uh, set of comments and questions. I, I had no idea how many people were from our era, Herbie, uh, but also a lot of other younger folks out there listening. Uh, we've got an interesting session tomorrow on uh, the Bank of England, the PRA, uh, work on what they're asking people to do in terms of bringing together uh, their demands for operational resilience. Um, we are going to be looking at the future of computing on Thursday when we're going to look at functional programming in finance. That'll be an interesting technical session for those who are there. Uh, and next week, we have a whole variety of webinars as well, all of which you are welcome to uh, check out on the website and join us. So thank you for that. Herbie, unfortunately, I can't open the floodgates here uh, and show you uh, how very engaged this audience has been. Uh, so I'll have to thank you on their behalf, if I may. And I will bring and down before, my... Uh, before you go, this is a stop master terminal, which I didn't show you before. But this is what a stop terminal looks like. Uh, it's one of the few left in captivity. So, yes, this is a stop terminal. Well, and I will thank you with something equally antiquated, which is my uh, karmic Korean clapper. So, uh, thank you so much, Herbie. I really appreciate you sharing uh, that history with us, and it's certainly not over yet. Indeed not. My pension's at risk otherwise. <laughs> we'll work on saving it. <laughs> Take care. Thanks. Cheers. Bye.